Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. There is a simple procedure that you probably learned in kindergarten that will serve you well today. This procedure taught you what to do if your clothes caught on fire. It consists of three simple steps. Stop, drop, roll. When there is a fire in your life, a problem that you have been unable to stop the spread of, do not try to fight it on your own. Don't run for the roofs. Don't try to fill a bucket or pry the extinguisher off the wall. Stop. Stop all movement. Stop all your attempts to fix it or make it better. Stop and then drop. Drop your defenses. Drop your excuses. Drop all plans. Drop the need to know anything. Drop the need to do anything. Stop and drop to your knees. And on your knees in prayer is the position that you must assume if you want the fire marshal to put the fire out. God is the fire marshal. And when you roll the situation over into God's hands, you can rest assured that help is on the way. There are some fires in your life that you simply cannot put out. These are the stop, drop, and roll over to God problems. These problems are like fires that will spread unless you do something quick. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair will encourage you to stop, drop, and roll your problems over to God. In faith and with faith, you will not get burned. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for sharing some time with us in the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Well, today the Church celebrates the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, which commemorates the presentation of Jesus in the Temple and the purification of Mary 40 days after his birth. Can you talk for a minute about the significance of this feast and the reason it is also referred to as Candlemas? Well, it's referred to as Candlemas because uh, the idea is the, the great image of light, that Christ is said that he was the true light of the world. It's a beautiful and frequent image in the New Testament in mm -hmm. the teaching of Jesus. And so the symbolism that Christ, the light, enters the temple. He's presented in the temple as the light of the world. We can talk more about the presentation as we come to our gospel today, so maybe we ought to save it for that. But today is also Super Bowl Sunday, and the country is getting ready to watch the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs compete in the hopes of becoming the champion and taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Although I, I think many people out there are mostly looking forward to the commercials. Are you planning to watch the game today? Uh, certainly some of it. Uh, I'm not as uh, interested in the commercials as some people are. Uh -huh. I know that they, uh, they always highlight the ones that are thought to be the most clever or witty or whatever or convincing, but we'll see. Well, would you believe that commercial airtime for a 30-second 30 30 commercial goes for $5.6 million, $5 million for just 30 seconds of airtime. Well, I think that puts you and I out of the market. <laughs> absolutely. So. absolutely. Are, are you going to be rooting for a particular team, the 49ers or the no, Chiefs? No, no, not this year, no. Okay. Tuesday of this week, the 4th of February, we remember the birth anniversary of the First Lady of Civil Rights, Rosa Parks. And on a fateful day in Montgomery, Alabama, back in 1955, a time when African Americans were obligated by law 
to ride in the back of the bus, she refused to give up her seat to a white man during a ride home from work. This simple act sparked the modern civil rights movement, leading to a 381-day boycott of the Montgomery bus system, lawsuits and eventual Supreme Court decisions decreeing segregation to be unconstitutional. So what lesson can be learned from Rosa Parks' act that changed the world, Archbishop? Well, it, it's part and parcel of religious faith as well, that it has to do with acts of courageous witness, <clears throat> that when... Uh, stands up and is counted for what is for doing what is right and uh, so I think uh, you know takes courage to do this takes certainly takes courage to stand up for our Catholic faith today but morally also there are many moral issues like a segregation that required a courageous witness and of course that's not uh, distinct from religion uh, it's very much founded in in faith about the equal dignity and rights of every human person and on Thursday of this week the church celebrates the memorial of St. Paul Miki and his companions. This day honors the 26 martyrs of Nagasaki, a group of native Japanese Catholics and foreign missionaries who suffered death for their faith back in the year 1597. St. Paul Miki helped many Buddhists embrace Christianity, and his final act was to evangelize the crowd that had gathered at his execution. Today, the church in Japan is respected and has total religious freedom. However, the number of Catholics in Japan is not, not large at all, as the spread of Christianity in the Far East is slow and, and is difficult, admittedly. Do you have any idea what can be done to efficiently bring Christianity to the Far East? Well, I don't know about the efficiently part, uh, but, uh, well, I have some experience of the Japanese martyrs because I don't know if on a previous program I've had occasion to say that when I was Cardinal Shaka's secretary in Rome some years ago in the 1990s, it was a major anniversary of the martyrs and the cardinal was appointed by pope saint john paul to be his official representative to the mass that was celebrated in nagasaki in the sports field and was televised nationally mm. and i accompanied the cardinal to japan it's my only trip to the uh, far east so we went uh, to tokyo from rome and then we went to nagasaki and stayed with the archbishop in nagasaki and uh, so we went to the shrine which is very beautiful and, of course, Nagasaki was also the site of the atomic bombing in yeah. World War II. Went to the museum, the atomic museum. But it is, uh, getting back to the martyrs themselves, that is a very heroic witness. Churches always taught that uh, the blood of martyrs is the seed of, of Christians. And in Japan today, there's a, uh, a minority of, uh, of Catholics. But, you know, a lot of the church's influence is uh, somewhat disproportionate to their numbers because... They run a lot of, uh, Catholics run a lot of uh, educational institutions and uh, that are very highly regarded. And there are dioceses in, in Japan. Uh, and uh, like all of us uh, in the church in the world, uh, the Japanese church is uh, always challenged to be evangelizing and to go out and bear witness. Uh, Japanese culture is very unusual in that regard. That You know, they even celebrate things like Christmas and they celebrate things that are Christian inspiration, but they don't uh, they don't attach to them the religious core of what of of uh, what brought these things into existence. It's interesting that this week we celebrate on Tuesday the courage of Rosa Parks, and on Thursday we celebrate the courage of the twenty six martyrs of Nagasaki. Uh, you know, when you talk about evangelization too, and and the church in in Japan. Uh, when, when I was there with the cardinal, we visited, uh, I guess you'd call it the, the monastery or the house 
where St. Maximilian Kolbe lived and worked for a number of years. You know, he was martyred in, by the Germans uh, in a concentration camp in World War II by uh, volunteering to take the place of a married man, a father who was mm. condemned to death, and he was killed in, in place of him. But Maximilian Kolbe, in his great Marian work, uh, ran a printing press and, and uh, uh, church uh, outreach uh, in Japan for a number of years. And I remember when we uh, were, were there, we visited that place. And not far from it is a, is a girls' uh, college uh, run by the church as well. So the, the, there are all these links, you know, yeah, over I, time. I, didn't, I didn't realize that, that uh, St. Maximilian Colby had, uh, had, been, uh, uh, had been in Japan to be a missionary in Japan, working in Japan. Yes. Hmm, interesting. In any case, Archbishop, changing the track a little bit, on Saturday of this week... Love makes the world go round, but laughter keeps us from getting dizzy. It's the beginning of a week, especially dedicated to laughter and the importance of laughter, the notion that laughter is the shortest distance between people, and and the fact that laughing actually, they say, lowers our levels of stress and strengthens the immune system. Well, I can believe that. Can you say something that will make me laugh? (laughs) No. You're already laughing, and I haven't even said anything. It's just a stupid well, question know, that I asked you, that's all. Well, you know, trying to command laughter never works. You can't command it. It has to be spontaneous. That's, that's true. That's true. Well, let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, in any case. And this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis that is drawn from some of the Pope's writings. So I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. And this is taken from Pope Francis's Angelus, delivered on October 23rd of 2016, and is called, Today Takes Courage, the Pope says. Today is a time for action and a time for courage. We need courage to steady our wavering steps, to recapture the enthusiasm of devoting ourselves to the gospel, to recover confidence in our mission and the strength it brings. This is a time for courage, although courage alone does not guarantee success. We need courage in order to fight but not to win, in order to proclaim, but not necessarily to convert. We need courage to find alternatives without ever becoming polemical or aggressive. We must have courage in order to open ourselves up to the world, diminishing neither the wholeness nor the uniqueness of Christ the Savior. Courage is required in order to resist skepticism, yet without becoming arrogant. Today we must have the courage of the tax collector in the gospel, who humbly did not dare even to raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Today is a day for courage. Today, courage is needed. Archbishop, your thoughts? Yes, uh, you know, to live a a godly life, to live by faith, uh, to stand up for right, for what is right and good and true, uh, always takes a certain amount of courage, but particularly when it is challenged and when those things are submerged under a lot of murky darkness. And of course, in our society today, uh, it takes a lot more courage than it used to, to uh, live and practice and uphold our Catholic faith. Because when everything is uh, very peaceful and people generally go along with what you say and do, uh, then you know there's not much, much courage in that. But when you have to stand up and be counted and contradict the uh, prevailing Uh, mood uh, or actions, then, you know, you talked earlier about the courage, uh, you know, of Rosa Parks and the civil rights movement, 
or the courage of a Paul Miki and his companions to even sacrifice their lives for the sake of their Catholic faith under persecution. Well, that's, that's, hero that's really heroic sanctity, heroic courage. But all of us every day have to have the courage of our convictions of our faith, and we have to be willing to pay a price to put it into practice. Because otherwise, not only are we diminishing ourselves uh, in the eyes of God, uh, but also we're giving a scandal to other people, you know, that could lead them then to, uh, into to some error or sin. So courage is a very important thing. And, and truly, if our faith means something to us, if it is more than on the surface, if faith comes from deep within us, then we are ready to take a stand and be courageous in the face of some of the things that are happening in society today. And I can think of one thing in particular. that You were, you were just at the March for Life in Washington, D.C. The whole abortion issue, the, the whole um, uh, stand for the rights and the dignity, the sacredness of human life, that we're called to stand up and be courageous in the face of so many who, who, who think that, that human life is so expendable from its very first beginning in the womb to later on saying that, well, if, if somebody is in such pain and they don't want to live anymore, then they have the right to ask for a cocktail concoction that is going to take their life away. So in the face of these tests and trials today, the, the Christian is called upon to be courageous, huh? Well, always, but I do think most people are not, and that's maybe a harsh judgment to make. But I think a lot of people, you know, have this notion that you don't want to ever argue about religion or politics, although we know that in both, particularly the politics, there's plenty of arguing going on. But we're not talking about arguing, are we? That's mm -hmm. not what courage is about. And I think that's where people maybe are mistaken. Uh, the courage of your convictions uh, doesn't mean that you have to um, be scolding people or deliberately picking fights with them or whatever. But it does mean that when in a given situation you have the, the uh, opportunity in a serene way to uh, state the courage of your convictions, uh, then you should do so. And you should also be prepared to do so in a charitable and informed way. Uh, and I think a lot of times people either shy away from that or they don't have sufficient uh, courage or they don't have sufficient conviction, which is very sad. And of course, only God can judge that. But I think it's not a question of fighting with people uh, or screaming at people. It's uh, a, about giving a serene and positive and peaceful witness. And when it comes down to it, taking a stand to choose the courageous thing to do in your own life when confronted by a decision-making challenge that would question your faith and your commitment to faith, huh? Yes. Archbishop, let's take a look now at our gospel reading for today on this fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. It's also the celebration of the presentation of the Lord. So on this second day of February, today's gospel is taken from Luke, the second chapter. And after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you and ask for your thoughts on what this gospel means. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, 
there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to thy people Israel. Archbishop, what are your thoughts as you hear this gospel account by Luke? Well, of course, as we spoke initially at the beginning of the program about Christ being the light entering the temple, and that's why it's also Candlemas Day, a day to bless candles and to celebrate the light. But I, I guess I focus uh, a little bit there on at the end about uh, Simeon's words to Mary, mm. you know, that a sword uh, of sorrow would pierce her heart. Our Lady of Sorrows is the image that comes from this. You know, this is a, a, a prophecy of things to come, um, uh, that Jesus is a sign to be con that will be contradicted. It really dovetails in what we were just saying about courage, you know, that, that Christ came into the world, and as the prologue of St. John's Gospel says, and his own received him not, but to those who did receive him, he gave power to become the children of God. And so it is until the end of time, Christ is always a sign of contradiction, and he calls us uh, to step out of ourselves in faith and to uh, believe in him. And um, Mary's heart, too, continues to be pierced as Our Lady of Sorrows by the trials and travails of the church and of those who, uh, who try to stand up for the faith and who suffer as a result of it. So it's a really beautiful prophecy and a beautiful reminder that Our Lady is always close to us, that Mary is always close to us uh, in, in all the trials and tribulations and the sorrows of life, uh, as long as we remain faithful to uh, Christ and to what he taught us. I wonder what Mary could have thought about this and how she could have possibly made sense of this. And Simeon says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be contradicted, and you yourself a sword will pierce so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. How could Mary possibly have made sense of this? Well, no, she, she, I'm sure from a human point of view, not, because uh, her life was yet unfolding. Uh, she, the, the, like all of us, we can't, we can't know what, what things mean until our life's over. We can only continue to be faithful through whatever, whatever comes our way, and so it was with her. Do we know anything more about this Simeon other than that he was righteous and devout and the Holy Spirit was upon him? As the no, I don't says. believe so. One of those holy people, he and Anna, both man and woman there in the temple, kind of being very devout temple people, people who devoted themselves very much to the, their religious practice and to the house of God. I mean, we have people like that today, uh, you know, That's true. men and women who are very devoted to being in church or to, to uh, the activities of the, of the church. Well, let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by uh, some of our listeners. For instance, Martha from Tallinn says, My eldest son has behavioral issues that are impacting my family greatly. 
Having him attend counseling doesn't seem to be working, and my husband and I are at a loss for what to do. Recently, he told us he does not want to attend Mass with the family anymore, but we told him that he must as long as he lives under our roof. Can you recommend any passages of Scripture that can guide us as a family during this troubled time? Well, Martha, first of all, my uh, prayers are with you that uh, you have this cross and uh, about behavioral issues with your son. I think there are a lot of people, a lot of families that are afflicted in this way anymore. And I can't help but think sometimes it's all connected to the, the, the troubled society in which we live uh, and the influences that are on our young people from very early on. But I'm no psychologist to be able to, to say with any, any kind of expertise what might be the root cause of your son's distress. Um, I think uh, here you ask for advice about insisting on mass attendance. I think there perhaps you have to and uh, follow the or seek and follow some advice from a good uh, counselor, a psychologist or a family counselor who may be able to help you in that regard. You're certainly right about what you want to do. The methodology, I don't know because I don't know your son's situation. As far as scripture passages, well, I can't think of anything for that particular issue, except I think you do need uh, very much, and I'm sure you do this, not to lose heart in praying for your son uh, and asking God <clears throat> to, uh, to uh, heal him of whatever issues he might have, to uh, give him the gift of, uh, of faith and peace. I think in this case, the scripture passage uh, is more for your benefit even than his, uh, to be uh, 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 to not lose heart or to lose faith in the face of these challenges. Well, this next question, Archbishop, comes from an email signed, A Grateful Army Spouse. And this Grateful Army Spouse says, I have a question about salvation and whether we can be assured of going to heaven as long as we believe in Jesus, have accepted him as our Savior, and do our utmost to live in accordance with his will. I am a Catholic convert. I grew up going to churches of several different denominations and was always taught, and subsequently believed, that if I accepted Christ as my Savior, then I would go to heaven when I die. My husband is a cradle Catholic, and he told me that none of us is assured salvation, no matter how much we believe, accept, and live out our faith. This has rocked me to my core and caused me to question whether I will be able to go to heaven. Alluding to the words of St. Paul, I am the foremost sinner. Although I have asked forgiveness many, many times and continue to ask it, I am ashamed of my sins. I have confessed them and received absolution, but I worry that I will not get to go to heaven or maybe even purgatory. Please help me and let me know how I can be assured of going to heaven. Well, that's quite a question. Uh, first of all, I would say that um, this idea, the, 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 I guess it centers around the word assurance, and the point of a Catholic faith is that uh, we are given the gift of eternal life in our baptism and in the ongoing sacramental life, in our prayer, and our faith. And we should not live in terror of going to hell. Uh, we, sh we, we certainly understand that we have received this gift of salvation in Christ, which is a free gift that we did not merit. It, it comes to us. So we, we don't earn it. You know, you can't earn going to heaven. It's a gift of Christ. But we can sin against it, and we can even sin against it mortally. 
That is to say, we can reject the gift that we have received in such a way that we could actually lose going to heaven. But for a person, and we're all sinners, we all commit sin till the day we die. So as long as the person uh, realizes uh, that left to himself or herself, we're weak and we can lose our way, as long as we are sorry for the sins we commit, we bring them serenely uh, to confession, to penance, we strive to overcome them, even though, you know, a lot for most people, the faults and sins that they have repeat themselves they're, they're, because they're particular to that person, a temptation or an inclination they have. But as long as we repent, God is always mercifully restoring us to the fullness of grace. And so you shouldn't be, you know, you're living a, a, a life of faith, you're praying, you're receiving the sacraments. You certainly should not be terrified of not going to heaven. Claim Jesus is my Lord and Savior. So then no matter what I do, it doesn't make any difference because I'm going straight to heaven. No, we're cooperators always in responding and accepting freely or rejecting freely the gift that we're, we've been given. But as long as we embrace it, we strive every day to live it, we're sorry for our sins and we strive to do better, uh, then we, we can be confident that God uh, will, will uh, bring us to the fullness of, of uh, salvation. But even when people die, you know, that's why the church... Uh, we pray for the dead because it's not because we think they're in hell. If they were in hell, there'd be no reason to pray for them. But because it is possible that even after this life, we're still in need of some purification for the for the full sight of God. And so uh, we offer prayers, uh, you know, for the dead, for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, and uh, this is a very joyful, hopeful, confident faith uh, in God. Larry from Oxford submitted a question, Archbishop. Larry says, I think that the reception of Holy Communion is probably the most precious time a person can have to commune with the Lord. Why, then, are we forced to sing hymns the whole time communion is being distributed, making it impossible for us to converse with the Lord? Interesting question. Well, Larry, I may get in trouble but for saying this, but when I receive communion, I, do sp I don't keep singing the hymn as soon as I get back to my place. I do spend some time quietly making a thanksgiving. And then, when I'm done doing that, if communion is still going on, then I join in the hymn. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right uh, that, yes, it's, it's proper to have a, a communion hymn, but it's also very proper for us to pr personally, intimately, in the silence of our own hearts and minds and souls, to, uh, uh, to speak to the Christ whom we have received within us, uh, Jesus, in, in, Holy, in the Holy Eucharist. In fact, I think it's a terrible impoverishment and a great mistake for people not to be using their own words and prayers uh, during communion time to the Lord and not just relying on on uh, the, the things that are, are said out loud and in common. I so much agree with you, Archbishop Ben. My being silent after receiving communion is probably a good thing rather than my singing during communion. The Lord probably well, we appreciates Well, we are not going to get into that. Okay, thank you. Oh, it's I, not I, just I, the Lord. It's not just the Lord. You mean the people next to me as well? I'm not saying. <laughs> Amy from West Hartford. I think we have time to get in one more question, Archbishop. Amy from West Hartford says, I've begun the RCIA program and will officially be a Catholic by Easter. I come from a Protestant family who is outraged by this decision. My parents are livid. But my brother has been unbearable, especially because he does not have any faith. How should I approach the situation and gain their understanding? Well, Amy, it sounds to me like the only thing you can do really is be very charitable and pray for them. 
prayer is very powerful, you know. And uh, don't allow, allow yourself to re, to get provoked or by these uh, taunts or provoked by this reaction. The more serene you are and the more prayerful you are about it, I think that is the very best thing of all. Well, Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together this morning. Can you conclude our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord Jesus, you truly are the light of the world. And as we celebrate the feast of your presentation in the temple, we pray that the light which spread forth from there and now enters the world through us and through our faith, through the life of the church, that it may continue to burn brightly and we may be given all the strength and all the courage we need to bear witnesses to the light. And we ask you to bless us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Archbishop, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner, and we look forward to joining you next week. Same time, 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday with a repeat at 1130. Until that time, enjoy this week. Thank you. <laughs>